and powerlessness that that you you can't save them. You know, somebody mm-hmm. who's in addiction, they have to decide to accept help, and if they don't, you you can't fix them. And um, that's that's a very uncomfortable position to be in. To the podcast, share your story, exploring humanity one heart at a time. I am your host, Jenny Diltz, and I help people convert their grief into growth in their own way and in their own time. This is a podcast where we dive deeply into the stories that make us who we are and show us who we can become. Together, we share real-life experiences of growth through our grief. I can be found at grievingcoach.com. Make sure you subscribe to the show so you don't miss exclusive interviews and some of my own tidbits and insights on grief. Welcome! Joining me this time is Jean Cropper, an artist, designer, and paper engineer. She is an internationally published author of three books, which together have sold over 30,000 copies. Originally from Boston, Massachusetts, she traveled around the world at 25, eventually settling in Sydney, Australia. She married her Australian husband at 28, and they were together for 19 years. They had a son in the last they had a son, and then in the last two years of their marriage, her husband became a volatile alcoholic, and their marriage ended. Then there were t- years of fear and disruption. Ten years and 17 hospitalizations later, here her former husband died from alcohol-related health issues. As a result, Jean and her husband, Jean and her son, sorry, Jean and her son developed PTSD. Jean shares her healing journey and how her insights have influenced her creativity and added to her art workshops. Welcome, Jean. I'm so happy to have you on the show. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you. And I love the artistic work that you do. Um, So I'm excited to delve into that part as well. Good, good. Yes. (laughs) The hard stuff and the fun stuff and creativity, it's all mixed together. Yeah, it is. It is. And that's what grief is. It's all mixed together. It's all the hard stuff, the fun stuff, the creativity. It's all mixed together. Discoveries. Yep. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. And growth all along the way. But before we get into your story, can you tell our listeners where they can find you? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, so that's probably one good place to find me, Jean Cropper with a K on LinkedIn, and also Paper and Pixel uh, workshops on uh, Facebook. So Facebook's also a good place to find me. Awesome. Cool. Let's get into your story because there's a lot there. So give us a summary of you and your husband's experience so that we have a little bit of context of where you're coming from. Sure. Uh, Yeah, I married uh, when I was traveling around the world and uh, migrated to Australia and, yeah, lived here, have lived here for many years. Uh, I didn't realize that he his family was very dysfunctional when I when we married. uh, And that was something that he he hid um, and he didn't want me to know. Um, I experienced his dad as being rather grumpy, but I didn't realize he'd been a violent alcoholic as as my husband grew up. And um, yeah, there was verbal abuse, physical abuse, uh, and there was incest in the family. So there was a lot of really serious problems and he didn't want to address them and he did not want that to come up. And I think years of trying to ignore that or or um, 
uh, Hyde that took a great deal of energy. And towards the end of our marriage, when he was under a lot of stress in, in his business, it all sort of exploded. And I, I knew things had been wrong and we'd argued over the years. I you know, said, hey, I think, I think you should get some counseling about that stuff with your father. Mm -hmm. uh, and he really did not wanna go there. And, and now that I understand more about generational abuse, I understand that asking someone to delve into their uh, past is, is a huge ask. You know, I, mm -hmm. I, I can understand that now, uh, but because he didn't tackle that bit by bit, uh, he sort of exploded into um, a complete nervous breakdown, drinking every night, volatile tantrums, uh, going psychotic, uh, throwing things, and suddenly life together was untenable. It just was frightening and confusing and dangerous. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I didn't understand all that was going on at the time, but just knew that I, I had to get out and protect my child and... Yeah, so I initially I just moved out of the house, my own house, to a hotel to get get some peace. Oh wow! So where was, um, how did you see grief in that experience of, of all the trauma and the anger and the psychological mm. challenges? Um. I guess grief for me was at first loss of the life we had together mm -hmm. and a loss of a connection to the person I once knew. Uh, my husband had been honest and smart and hardworking and loving. And so grief at first was the loss of that connection with him, uh, the loss of a, a life together a home, um, a garden I'd built, you know, I'd, I'd oh, replanted our whole garden because we bought a house that had been rented out for seven years and the garden had been you know, abandoned. Um, yeah, and a circle of friends and a whole life we had together. So for me, the grief was losing all of that mm -hmm. uh, and, and confusion about what was happening. Um, I, I left before he hit me. So it, it sort of seemed like I, I didn't know what I could complain about, you know, because mm, okay. people would sort of say, well, why did you leave? I was like, well, yeah, he, he didn't hit me, but I was afraid he'd beat us to death. So it was a, a terrifying time. Uh, but people who were around us who wanted to pretend he was okay, they sort of communicated, well, I, I don't understand what the problem is. But the, the grief for me was the loss of of the connection with him and our, our whole lives together. Yeah. That you lost a lot. Yeah. Like yeah. It wasn't a physical death, but you did lose a lot. Yeah, and, and the sense of dislocation was really uh, painful. Um, mm -hmm. and just trying to figure out how to go on when there there wasn't a death and with alcoholism or probably other addictions as well you lose someone bit by bit where their brain slowly erodes away the character of who they was slowly erodes away and there's a strange mix of of deep grief but also rage uh and powerlessness that that you you can't save them you know somebody mm -hmm. who's in addiction they have to decide to 
accept help. And if they don't, you, you can't fix them. And um, that's, that's a very uncomfortable position to be in. Um, yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, you said, you mentioned that you didn't know what was going on at first. What was that like? Uh, I guess I felt very crazy because I I couldn't quantify or, or quite say what was going wrong with him. And, you know, nobody says when, you know, if, if you have a partner who's having a nervous breakdown, this is what they're going to be doing and you can recognize it. It's, it's not a conversation I ever had with anyone. Mm-hmm. But when, you know, he stopped taking showers and he stank for weeks and he wouldn't go to bed and, you know, I, I couldn't, he wouldn't let me hug him or comfort him or he wouldn't talk about what was going on. And uh, yeah. And then when I moved out uh, to start again in a new neighborhood, in a new apartment, uh, you know, after having my own home, I, I didn't quite know what was going on. And gradually I realized I needed to get divorced because he was volatile and unstable and I didn't know what decisions he would be making, you know, financially or otherwise. Um, but I, I I didn't expect to to get divorced or, or even want to do that. Mm-hmm. And um, would have rather see him heal. Uh, so... It was a very confusing time to sort of, I feel like I stumbled along for quite a few years, just trying to keep the routine of, you know, getting my son up to school and picking him up in the afternoon and cooking dinner and getting laundry and doing my work. And uh, and yet everything was changed. So grief was dealing with that change. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess it was confused in the sense of, it, it took it was some years before I realized I had post-traumatic stress where I was having uh, recurring nightmare nightmares about you know, bad situations we'd been through and I wasn't sleeping it would take me an hour and a half to get to sleep at night and I'd wake up regularly and uh, always being alert for danger or being afraid that you know he might show up and um, be violent or confused or drunk or you know I didn't know what so mm-hmm. It was about losing losing a whole life I had and also not being sure who I was talking to when I did talk to my husband. Um, I, I didn't know what his capacity was as he drank more and more you know, over the, the 12 years that he drank. Uh, I, I didn't know what he was capable of understanding. And it was yeah, quite some time before I started reading up about that you know, alcoholism damages the frontal lobe and they lose the capacity to make decisions and put different bits of information together and then you lose their the character of who they are. And uh, at, at, when you're in it, it's um, uh, just a really confusing mess of what you can expect from somebody that you, you, know, you thought you knew so well. Yeah. And it's different for every alcoholic, correct? Sure, sure, yes. So even yeah. if you had like a textbook or a manual, it yeah. may or may not match what your True. husband was doing. True. Yeah. And and also people might drink more or less, or there might be other factors or other medication or other inherited factors that would be part of that and mm-hmm. different family histories. Uh, yeah. 
so yes, absolutely. And and now I I yeah have a bit more understanding of generational abuse and how families do try to hide things that you're sort of in a club and you're not supposed to um, talk about what goes inside the family. Mm-hmm. And by my leaving my husband, uh, now I understand that his family saw it as betrayal of that those secrets and that there was a fear that you know I would tell what was going on uh, well to me it was almost the opposite well you know if you if you share what you've been through people can support you people can say wow yeah I I understand or I hear you or I know how to help you or I know where to get help for that or uh, and it's you I, I don't think you can heal from something if you admit or, or you're pretending it hasn't even happened. Yeah, I agree. In fact, that's one of the very first things that I help people with as I help people in their grief is recognize name and claim, recognize that grief. Mm. So like you were saying, once you acknowledge that it's there, then you can get the resources, the help, so the support, the tools mm. that you need to heal from it, to work with it, to grow from it. Mm. But if you're trying to ignore it and say that it's not there, that that healing and progression doesn't often happen. Yes, no one, no one can help you if they don't know that you're struggling. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess there was so much chaos in our lives, he would change schedules. He'd say he wanted me to our son and then not show up. He would say he'd you know, pay for part of a new laptop for my son's high school uh, work. And then he wouldn't pay. And you know, just financially and schedule wise, things were always changed and up in the air. And um, I, I just realized I couldn't pretend things were okay. So I started telling you know, the other school mothers, what was going on. And I talked to my son's school. Uh, so his teachers and the school counselor knew. And then if they noticed things that were going on, one, they could be supportive and also just uh, check in with me or my son and say, you know, how can we help right now? Yeah. Uh, and those things were, were very precious. I mean, his school found a $500 scholarship towards you know, uniforms and fees and school books and stuff and it wasn't that it was that much money but it was so welcome and just the feeling of being supported uh and having someone say oh you know hey i see you're struggling and we'll do what we can to help was so precious you know just moved me to tears that's amazing i was about to ask what impact it had on your son um through all of this uh, it wasn't until after my husband died before my son started talking about what was really going on. Uh, I had thought my husband could not drink when our son was there. I, I didn't realize he was drinking when our son was there the whole five years we had joint custody. So it had a huge effect in that um, uh, our son was terrified. He'd never grow up. He um, you know, sometimes his dad smashed furniture beside him when he was drunk or had temper tantrums or uh, you know went off in a bedroom and shut the door and was screaming and swearing and yelling and and then he'd come out again and, and sort of pretend things were okay um, he 
wouldn't allow our son to uh, do his homework because he wanted our son's full attention when he was there because his brain was so busy with unpleasant things. He wanted our son to sort of entertain him or be present with him. So our son just sort of didn't do his homework when he was there. Um, and uh, yeah, he often wasn't fed. Um, my husband would drink and not buy food. And um, so there were some months where he didn't necessarily get fed properly or he was going off to school without breakfast. And um, so it was really tough on him. And um, it was only gradually after uh, my husband's death that he felt safe enough to talk about things. Uh, and it, it was devastating, heartbreaking to listen. And I realized I needed to, to shut up as a mother and, and not react too much because I needed to just let him talk mm -hmm. and say what was going on for him. And, uh, and, and over time he has made some peace with that. And he understands that I didn't know what was going on. And as a young kid, we were, he was eight when we separated that, uh, you know, he didn't know about joint custody. He didn't know it could be ended. He didn't, know about alcoholism uh, and he didn't know what was in my power to help with or not um, and um, I'm really glad we had the apartment and the safe space to talk through the things that happened to him and he could process those things in a safe space mm -hmm. and get heard and get support and um, uh, yeah over time I got him uh, a counselor that he felt comfortable with. And um, eventually we both went to a, um, a center that does a healing week for people who've been through some sort of trauma. It's called Heal for Life in um, uh, the state of New South Wales. It's about a two hour drive from Sydney. And um, that was a good start to uh, give us a framework for just thinking about grief and trauma. Mm -hmm. and also to um, begin learning some techniques to figure out uh, you know, different ways of healing and, and setting boundaries. Yeah. yeah. I can imagine that hearing your son's experience and everything that he went through triggered mm -hmm. the mama bear, the grief, the, oh my goodness, response in you. Yeah, yeah, that was horrifying. That was really, really awful. And um, yeah, I was very, very angry at at my former husband. And um, yeah, I, I wanted to rip his head off. Um, yeah, and just that my husband wasn't understanding of himself well enough to be able to just say to me, hey, I, I can't be a parent at the moment you know I, I can't do this I I need you to just take over which could have happened you know yeah. uh years before but I I didn't know there was a problem and other family members other friends who had visited uh the house no one told me that his dad was drinking when he was looking after our son and I don't know if they thought I knew uh I don't know if they were trying to hide it or you know, shame was involved. I, I, I don't know. Um, uh, yeah, but yeah, it was devastating. And um, it's, it certainly took me a while to 
heal from that as well. Mm-hmm. And, and we're just thinking, oh, it's a 10 minute drive away. I could have, you know, I could have fixed that. Yeah, yeah, just horror and yeah, and terrible grief that, you know, a, a child can't get their childhood back. You you can't give them that back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one thing I'm very glad I did was I, I did realize I couldn't protect him from the whole situation, but I decided that I would make sure he had as many um, life skills to deal with it as, as possible. And so as I gradually did find out that more had happened than I realized that uh, I taught him simple meditation techniques. We used to sit and meditate together. Um, uh, yeah, I did get him a counselor. Mm. And, you know, we, we played with art together and made stuff, did craft together uh, and and made sure that people around him knew what was going on so that um, he had some other people there uh, to to talk to. Yeah. Did you have that same support network and life skills that you taught him? Did you have those same skills for yourself? Uh yeah, I suppose I had the skills, but I didn't have the support network mm, okay. uh, because we'd left the marriage, left that circle of friends. And a lot of the circle of friends did not want to believe that he was an alcoholic or that he was you know, in as bad shape as he really was. Uh, I didn't have a strong support network. And, and my husband had told everybody that I had an affair and that's why I left. It had nothing to do with alcohol. And so a lot of them cut me off emotionally. Um, and at first I was mortified at that and, and very angry. And then I thought, Hey, I just, I just need to move on. I, you know, I need to take care of me. Mm-hmm. And if I need to create a new world with new friends and new people around me, we'll just do that. We, we have to be healthy. We have to cut off from what was so unhealthy that I you know, didn't fully understand. Yeah. And um, that was a good decision to just say okay fine let it go uh and um and I, I was angry and and bitter for a while uh but fairly quickly I realized that bitterness ate at me and that didn't help in healing or moving on it took energy out of me instead of you know supported me um and yeah and gradually I made new friends um uh, I met a woman in her 70s in the neighborhood who uh you know, took our son to scouts sometimes and took him to a dentist appointment occasionally. And she and I would go for walks together. Uh, and I met other people who had been through things as well. Uh, other women who were going through you know, family separations or divorces. Uh, and yeah, sort of formed a network of people. Um, I talked to divorced dads at, at my son's school when we're picking up our you know kids after school mm-hmm. and asked them, about things they had been through in their perspective and learned from the men as well and um, realized that they would have different insights and that that would be valuable too. Um, so yeah, just gradually found another, you know, adopted family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. How long after you were separated did your husband die? Uh, almost 10 years. Uh, well, 10 years, almost to the week <laughs> yeah um 10 years and one week i think it was uh, yeah yeah he died on 17th of june uh 2016 
and we separated on the 3rd of June uh, 2006. So, yeah. So did you have any communication or contact with him from the time that you separated until he died? Yeah, yeah. Uh, at first we had regular uh, because uh, we had joint uh, joint custody of our son. So our uh -huh. son went back and forth one week, one week. Okay. Uh, and and after that, I tried to keep the communication open because I had heard so many stories from men about how devastated they were being cutting off from kids. Uh, so I didn't want to exclude our son from his father. Uh -huh. uh, but now I realize I, I probably should have cut off more contact than I did because I, I didn't understand how volatile he was. Yeah. Um, but my son has said that in some ways he appreciated the contact because then he had room to decide to have less contact and he had room to see how unhealthy his dad was and that he could choose to not have contact. So that looking back, he got as much dad time as he could mm -hmm. and then when when that ended he was comfortable with that so it wasn't that he longed for time with his father and didn't get it or resented me for cutting off from his dad so uh, I think anything you do is going to have some some good and some bad right uh, but I it, it did allow him to make peace with no I don't want more time with my dad you know that's that's enough he's he's not in a mental health space that's anywhere healthy. Um, uh -huh. And yeah, I did make an effort to get other men in my son's life uh, from a school counselor who was a man to um, uh, friends of his, their fathers that, you know, sometimes he'd go over their house and do woodwork or play video games or that, that sort of thing where, uh, you know, I talked to the other fathers and said, Hey, you know, it would be lovely if you could just talk to my son occasionally and say hello. And I mean, even my hair cutter once said, Hey, Jean, you know, do you want me to take him out for an ice cream and just be there for him? And, and I said, sure, you know, just so he knows there are other men in his life that, that care about him. Uh -huh. uh, and we had a, um, his godfather was uh, in the United States and they'd talk on zoom and uh, his grandmother, my mother would also talk to him regularly so uh, I did choose to find other people that could be around him uh, and have other, so he could have other conversations than what he might talk to with his, with his mom. Right. That's awesome. Um, I was thinking of something. How long was, was your son in joint custody then? Uh, it was almost five years. Oh, wow. That's yeah, it wasn't until my husband was hospitalized. He was hospitalized for 10 days. And um, because joint custody is a, a legal agreement, I, I didn't know the details of how I could revoke that. And um, I also didn't want to spark a fight with, with my ex-husband. I didn't know if he could you know, cause serious trouble or violence if, uh -huh. if I did it in a way that he disagreed with. Yeah. And uh, so one time when he was in hospital, I, uh, he had gone psychotic. Um, I'd actually called the police. I knew he had four guns and I asked if they could take them away. And um, 
they said, hey, we can't take them away, but we can interview him. And in Australia, there are, are gun laws such that you can um, have guns removed from the home if they're not stored properly or if somebody is mentally ill or psychotic. Um, mm -hmm. And the police said, hey, you can't tell us to take his guns away. You can't make that decision. I said, that's fine. I, I don't want to make that decision. But they interviewed him in hospital and um, he was psychotic. And so that they revoked his gun license uh, for a period of two years. And uh, they went to the house to check that he had stored them correctly and they weren't. And so they confiscated his guns. And later I found details out from neighbors, but um, uh, so the guns were removed and I, I had a clear message from the police saying, hey, he is psychotic, he is not okay. And I was able to revoke um, joint custody. And I spoke to my former mother-in-law and asked her to sign a piece of paper saying that you know her son was not in a condition to look after children. And then I was able to end joint custody. And um, okay, so, but that was also devastating in the sense to say, to acknowledge that he was not in a situation, you know, that he was not okay to be a father. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, I knew he probably never would be again. And that our son would not have the father that expected, you know, and he loved our son. He just had no idea how to be a father and had a lot of mental health problems that prevented him engaging. Yeah. So bring down another layer of grief. Another layer of grief. Yeah. 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 That, that was hard. Um, yeah. And, and just acknowledging someone who had been, you know, smart and kind and hardworking and loving uh, was not that person anymore. Mm -hmm. And, um, stepping away from blame but just acknowledging that that was how it was and needing to let go yeah mm -hmm. there's a lot there to process yeah yeah so what was it like when you found out that he died it was strange um he died alone at home and um, a neighbor found him, just went into the house to check on him and he was dead on the floor and had been dead for a couple of days. Um, my sister-in-law called me and I you know, drove her for immediately to the house and, and the police came and um, we were there for hours where they were questioning us and what had happened. And the first response I had was relief. Uh, and I realized I'd actually been afraid of violence for 12 years. Mm. And I, I hadn't realized that. I hadn't acknowledged that until he died. Um, and that shocked me, I guess, that, yeah, that I, I wasn't afraid anymore was, was the biggest thing. Um, but also it was rather devastating to realize I had been afraid of you know, the man I had loved for 19 years. Um, and then sad for him that he had not been able to receive healing or not been willing to acknowledge he had problems such that people could help him. I, I don't think he believed he could be helped. Uh, 
and yeah, grief that I was not going to have him as a husband and we were not gonna raise our child together. Uh, that was a, a whole change of my future. Um, mm -hmm. A grief of losing a future, you know, I expected to have and that I expected our son to have. Um, so yeah, another level of loss. Uh, and it was hard in that there were a lot of the friends that we'd had around us when, when we were married that had turned a blind eye to the alcoholism. And uh, I mean, one of them said afterwards, oh, his death was such a surprise. <laughs> and I was thinking 17 hospitalizations, 12 years of drinking? you know, surprise, you know, you've got to be joking. Um, and this was a man who once, when my husband had been arrested for drunk driving, he walked to this guy's house the next morning because he, you know, he couldn't get the distance home. And, and I was thinking, you know, how blind people can be when things are horrifying and sad that they don't want to see. Mm. Uh, and I guess to me, it was like, but we have to deal with reality. So you, you can only heal and move on if you acknowledge the awful stuff that's happened. Uh, and I, I guess I, I'm not able to just turn a blind eye. It was like, hey, the reality is just right here in my life. I, I can't pretend. Yeah. Um, but the lovely side of the funeral was that um, uh, his year advisor at his high school had uh, got permission for all his close friends. Oof, yeah, I remember now. All his close friends to take the day off for the funeral. And she talked to their parents and got, got them all to dress well for a funeral. She told them how to behave. And we had this honor guard for my son of a whole group of his friends. And they brought so much life and energy and support for him. It was really moving and it changed the whole funeral. Um, instead of people being angry at me and trying to blame me for his alcoholism, which was what had gone on. They, they, they wanted to you know, forget it or, or pretend it was all my fault. Um, suddenly we had you know, a lovely teenage boy who was 17 and all his friends there in support. And it became a funeral about supporting a son who was trying to live after losing a father. And um, yeah, that was beautiful. That was that was really lovely. That's amazing. Kudos, kudos, kudos to his school community <laughs> yes. and his family. I was I was so glad I told his school what was going on, and um, yeah, very appreciative of the support. And um, uh, yeah, yeah, it was it was beautiful just to have that that young energy uh, uh -huh. at the funeral and. And also the importance that, hey, what are we really here for? You know, we're here to support a teenager who's lost his dad. That's what matters. You know, blame is is not useful in addiction. Yeah. It, it doesn't help anyone move forward. And um, we're all in grief. We all experience it different ways. And I, I guess that was one thing that became clear after the funeral was that you know, my husband's sister, my sister-in-law, her experience of grief was different. His mother's experience of grief, losing a son is different. That mm -hmm. the, my son's experience of losing a father is, is different from me losing a husband. And yeah. 
each person has quite a different journey of what they saw, what they experienced of that person and what the, yeah, what, what that journey of grief is that different things may come to them at, at very different times. And so you might be, you know, very out of sync. Um, yeah, my sister-in-law and I had a, a very difficult time because we were trying to deal with my former husband's estate. And um, she was just so angry and wanted to blame me for being difficult for, you know, making this problem happen. And I was trying to stay with, hey, you know, she's grief stricken that her her brother is 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 dead and try to just stay with that, uh, even though she was making our lives very difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but I, I guess now I, I understand how different those journeys can be. there's so and in a way why why would they be the same true yeah because because yeah like you said our relationship to that person our experiences with that person our perspectives our personalities what we choose to see or not see how much we have to be in the thick of it it's Mm. different for everyone Mm, yeah yeah and I didn't have any of the shame because the abuse was not you know I could sort of say well it wasn't in my family (laughs) it wasn't my family's problem uh and I, I guess for me it wasn't so much of an issue my family didn't shame me for divorce I know in some families that is a big shame thing it wasn't in mine thank goodness uh-huh. Uh, once my, you know, my mother understood what was wrong, she was like, hey, fine, you know, full support. Yeah. And, and one of my husband's uh, family members at, at first asked a whole bunch of questions and said, you know, why are you getting divorced? What's going on? And I said, okay, well, I, I, I hadn't wanted to say, you know, the ugly stuff about him because I, I didn't want to, to shame him or embarrass him. And, uh-huh. uh, but when somebody asked directly and I sort of said, okay, hey, this is this is what's going on. You know, he's drinking every night and there's serious problems at home. Uh, then that, you know, that one relative was very supportive and um, it helped to have a few of those anchors uh, of, of people just saying, hey, I know you're okay. I know you're doing the right thing. I know you're not doing this to be mean. It's not, oh, I just feel like leaving a marriage after 19 years for the fun of it. It's like, mm-hmm. no, no. <laughs> Um, yeah. yeah, so it, it helped having those people, but uh, it wasn't that they did anything on a day-to-day basis to help me, you know, financially, emotionally, or in a practical sense. None of those people were driving my son to school or, you know, buying us a meal. Uh, mm-hmm. So in the practical sense, I was very much on my own, which was extremely difficult. You know, yeah. It was exhausting and frightening. I was like, hey, could somebody just invite me over for for lunch or, you know, could somebody else organize Christmas or mm-hmm. uh, could somebody throw me a birthday party? You know, it's, it's uh, you know, when you're a single parent, it's hard. Um, I mean, silly little things, but 
I used to buy myself some birthday presents just so my son didn't see me on my birthday having no presents, no one give me anything, you know, and, you know, so I gave him money so he could buy me some things, but, you know, magically some birthday presents appeared and, <laughs> you know, you don't want your kids to feel they have to take care of you when they're 10 years old. Yeah. You know, you, you want them to have a sense of being okay. And not that you seriously deceive them, but there are some things that you can spare them mm -hmm. in, in that. Um, yeah. You know, I was pretty darn honest. I mean, I had one um, friend of my son's whose mother, she had her dad die of alcoholism when she was 13 and no one told her what was going on. And she didn't find out she was, till she was 26. And then she had to rewrite her whole family history when she knew her father was an alcoholic. And she said, hey, don't, don't do that to your son. Do tell him what you can age appropriately and help him through this grief, this transition now. And that was very daunting, but it also seemed easier than pretending. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I was actually just in a webinar about grief support and coaching people through grief. And the topic of how do we work with our kids in grief? came up and um the leader of the webinar said be real with them teach them like tell them how it is and mm -hmm. like you said age appropriately of course mm -hmm. but don't shy away from it and let them mm -hmm. see you more and let them see you in your grief experiencing your yeah. grief so that they can work through it now step by step at their level rather than having like your friend, a surprise after years and years and have to mm. go back and rewrite everything. Yeah, it, it seemed unfair to her that she had a false narrative of who her father was and what their family was. Mm -hmm. And the sense of betrayal and confusion and maybe distrust uh, yeah. would be difficult. Yeah, would, that's, that's a small way to put it. Um, yeah, and I just thought... Yeah, my son needs to know um, within boundaries, uh, not necessarily all the gory details, but um, I mean, we didn't visit him in hospital when he was drinking and okay. he was hospitalized. Uh, I chose not to go there. Uh, and in my husband's family, they didn't do day-to-day -day parenting and care for each other. They only responded when there were crises. So the kids tended to make these big crises, and then the family would come in and rescue. And I was like, "Hey, I, I can't do that." Um, in my family, we were, we did more day-to-day -day parenting and care for ourselves and each other, uh -huh. and we didn't do big crises. Um, and I just thought, you know, a child doesn't need to go to hospital to see a father in, in terrible shape, and and I couldn't be hooked back in to the marriage by that it was like no the marriage is over I am not responsible for him uh and I, I spoke to many of his friends over the years and said hey can you talk to him about this can you talk to him about this can you see if you can get him to AA can you see if you can get him into rehab uh you know I did many many things I you know gave him a, a free appointment for acupuncture to help 
you know, treatment, um, but he didn't want help or would not accept help or didn't think it would work. Mm -hmm. uh, so I did as, you know, as much as I humanly could to get him help, but um, it has to be up to them. They, they have to choose. Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess it took a long time to understand boundaries. I mean, even in the marriage, I would often, he, he wanted to hand over control for his healthcare, you know, and he, he would have a hurt shoulder from work and I'd be the one saying, hey, why don't you go get, go see the doctor or why don't you go to a physio appointment? And uh, he wouldn't. Um, and I realized that he had sort of wanted me to look after him in certain ways that, that weren't really healthy because that's really, you know, you're, you're in charge of your own care. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, yeah, I realized I needed to back off and leave him room to choose to heal or not. Yeah. And that's something that's, um, applicable in grief too. Um, mm -hmm. many times people will say, oh, my friend needs grief support. Oh, they could use help processing or dealing with their grief. Well, perhaps they could, but until that person is ready to receive it, like with your a former husband, it's not going to go very far. Even like best of intentions, best of support, best of resources. Mm. It has to be with the person. Yeah. Yes, I, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to respect their process. Uh, yeah. And with my son, uh, he wasn't ready to go to the um, uh, the healing week at the at Heal for Life at the trauma center. Uh for a, you know, a couple of years after his dad's death. And then he was ready. Mm -hmm. And I you know, thought, oh, this will be useful. This will be useful. But the other person has to be at a point where they're ready. And they also have to feel, I guess, safe enough to disrupt their world and how they see it. Because I think when you do healing, you have to let go of a vision you had of the person or the relationship or the future you expected to have. And that's another break from the past in that you have to acknowledge whatever awful thing happened and move through that. And it takes quite a bit of courage to do that. And you have to be in a, a safe place physically and emotionally to be able to you know, rip your world apart to let go of the old one and move into or create a new one. Mm -hmm. Speaking of that healing process, was it gradual for you? Yeah, it was. I I had a um, acupuncturist who was a chiropractor and a kinesiologist, and he he was one person who was a really lovely support person, and the acupuncture helped with um uh my adrenal system because I was sort of on alert all the time and afraid with post-traumatic stress and not sleeping well so that was you know one thing that helped and yeah gradually getting into counseling and um yeah I did trauma release release exercises TRE uh did craniosacral therapy uh, 
which was an energetic healing process and um, uh, massage that would sort of ground me in the present and ground me in my body. Uh, so yeah, and I did some uh, counseling with a trauma-informed therapist uh, and artwork. Artwork was a wonderful way of um, releasing strong emotions and venting them and getting them out of my head on a piece of paper. Uh, and I mean, I remember making a collage once about what's what's in my head, what's in my subconscious, and it was all these dark browns and purples and blacks and weird shapes and stuff. And um, but it was really good to just get it out of my head and look at it and go, yeah, okay, yeah, that's that's what that darkness feels like. And for me, art was something that I could use when I didn't necessarily have words for what I was experiencing. I could get things out of my head and and on paper. Uh, and so often with trauma, you don't have words for mm -hmm. what's happening. Uh, or, or the words are too harsh. Uh, you can't quite get the language. You know, it's a new thing for you. you um, it's nothing you've experienced before. So there, there's no language there for that. Uh, and I, I'm trained as an artist, but for me coming back into really making art in this way wasn't about making beautiful pictures. It was just about venting and expressing and um, getting confusion and uh, you know, rage and, and grief and terror out of my head onto a piece of paper so that, uh, yeah, I could calm my brain enough to get to sleep uh, mm -hmm. and have the patience to take care of a child and cook dinner and do laundry. Um, drive safely, uh, you know, have a clear head enough to focus. Um, because for me, I guess with post-traumatic stress, it was really bad insomnia, uh, great difficulty getting to sleep, um, recurring nightmares, mm -hmm. um, being on alert, hyper alert all the time for bad things happening, uh, having um, catastrophizing, you know, having daydreams about all sorts of horrible things that might might happen, uh, which is easy after a lot of bad things have actually happened. Mm -hmm. it, it's quite logical to, to expect there might be more. Uh, and also difficulty um, putting together different bits of information to make decisions like strategizing and planning uh, is very difficult if you're not, not sleeping and, and have PTSD. Um, so yeah, so it was all those things and yeah, art was one of the, the big things that I could use any time of night or day to get a piece of paper and just start scribbling and making marks. And um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and sometimes going through, you know, five sheets of papers, just uh, scribbling, making marks, wild drawings or writing words and uh, venting in a way that, you know, didn't hurt anybody and was expressive. Uh, and was also a way of taking my temperature. I could look at it the next day and go, right, okay, yeah, I I see that. It makes sense. I I understand what's what's there. And how did it? So you talked about taking, like, having your art take help you take your temperature. How did it help to lower your temperature? Uh, getting 
making art was a way of getting raging thoughts out of my head and onto paper. So it was a way of releasing them mm-hmm. uh, and, and and making them tangible. Uh, it was also a way of releasing strong emotion. If I was really angry or terrified or sad, uh, sometimes I do what, what's called chaos drawing, which is basically scribbling mm-hmm. uh, and a way of really venting strong emotions and you know making making marks and uh having a big fat marker or a dark graphite pen where you can push really hard and just draw and and scribble um so it would one yeah get the stuff out of my head two make it tangible three i i could see it and look at it the next day and get a a sense of what was going on Mm -hmm. um and um, yeah, and over time, it just became a way of expressing emotion, releasing emotion. And then I could also use it to calm myself that uh, in doing, I started doing what I call meditative drawing, which is drawing lines and shapes or dots over and over to make patterns. And it's a way of giving your brain something simple and fun and creative to do so that all the chaotic thoughts sort of fade into the background Mm -hmm. and you're just present with this simple creative drawing practice and then the brain just quiets down and it's a lovely way of um, self-care and self-regulation to uh, I mean some people would play an instrument or go running or swimming or uh, different things you might do for me uh, meditative drawing was a really good practice for just um, uh, forgetting the world and um, quieting the busy thoughts, calming my heart rate and, and adrenal system and uh, and getting to play, to do something that wasn't hard, that was fun and ending up, um, you know, in a happier mood and uh, sometimes, you know, drawing something that you kind of like, you know, oh, Oh, that's kind of pretty. Uh I went from distress and horror and fear and rage. And, you know, sometimes I might make marks in black and purple and brown. And at the end of it, you go, wow, that's a wonderful scribble. And then, you know, you could scrunch it up, throw it away and let go. Uh, And then you could do another scribble that was in, you know, pink and yellow and orange. And it would be something exuberant and pretty and Mm -hmm. fun. And so to use art as a technique for yeah, expressing and venting uh, and checking in with yourself was yeah, really quite transformative. That's amazing. Did you do that kind of artwork with your son too? Uh, sometimes, yes, yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, even recently, um, actually I think it was after the workshop I did with you, uh, I did, uh, chaos drawing and he came home one day in a really bad mood something had gone wrong I can't remember what it was now uh and he was you know like mom can I just have some paper I just I just need to you know I said hey yep here you know and I I think I gave him the link to the video and he was like fine yep I don't want to talk to you right now you know and I said it's okay here's a marker pencil go you know and uh he came back you know half an hour later going yes 
thank you. That's just what I needed to do. I was like, okay, good. I'm glad it worked. <laughs> you know? That's awesome. Um, and I, I, you know, I really think it's, it's good where I think art is often ignored as a therapy technique, if you want to call that, or mm -hmm. healing technique. And, and I think art can actually do a lot of heavy lifting that we don't give it credit for, uh, that art can help us change state, change mood, release rage. I think art can really be used in a lot of uh, really practical, important ways that we we ignore. And I, I think it's um, a really important thing to have in, in your toolkit, not, not about being an artist or, or making beautiful pictures, but as one way that you can heal. Mm -hmm. One of my clients, um, actually attended the workshop and they say that that's one of their go-to methods of calming themselves down and helping them relax and recalibrate and work through the trauma that they've experienced. Mm. So thank you. Thank you for sharing those with us. Oh, good. Good. I'm really glad. Yeah. Very glad. Yep. Yeah. I've just been talking to uh yeah veterans group and um they're interested in collaborating because i i would like to work with people who really are genuinely struggling with real issues uh you know with ptsd or you know first responders i, I talked to a firefighter a couple of weeks ago he'd been worked for 21 years as a firefighter in washington state and um had ptsd and people who are dealing with real symptoms that are really uncomfortable, that art is one of the tools that you can learn and then use on your own. And yeah, I, I think that's a really important resource. Yeah. And what I like about your methods are that it doesn't require an artist degree. It doesn't require any artistic training or education. It's, mm -hmm. Take whatever you have, pencil, pen, marker, paper, napkin, newspaper, whatever you have. Yeah. And just go. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've worked with people with whiteboard markers and um, uh, yeah. And in May, I went in Australia, the, in Melbourne, there was the worst hit area for COVID deaths in Australia. And um, the council was doing a big debrief event for all their staff. Uh, going through all the good stuff and the bad stuff that happened during the COVID pandemic and the systems of theirs that worked and those that really didn't work. And so it's going to be a very traumatic day where they'd be talking about all the bad stuff that happened. And um, they brought me in at the end of their debrief event to do an hour session with their staff so that they could you know, calm down, forget the world for a little while, do something fun and creative. And we gave them their own art journal so that they could go on and do it again. Um, and I just thought it was so precious that people in a business setting could say, hey, we need to support our staff. They've gone through something really big. Uh, we need them to be productive. We're talking business terms. We need them to be able to go home to their families, uh, you know, drive safely home, be comfortable and calm with their kids. Uh, how can we do that? And something like a meditative drawing workshop can help in a very practical way in a business setting. And uh, you know, I, I love the idea of bringing art and healing into um, 
business spaces and, and lots of different spaces where it can help. That's so amazing. Um, so yeah, check out, check out Jean's work. It's, it's so incredible. Uh, she's amazing and I love working with her. And for everyone who is a subscriber, um, I'm actually putting in that workshop that I did with Jean. It's called Art as Universal Tool to Heal as a subscription only episode. So watch out for that and have a fantastic, fantastic day. But before we go, Jean, where can people find more about you? Uh, LinkedIn is probably the, a good place. Uh, uh, so yeah, Jean Cropper on LinkedIn uh, and paper and pixel workshops on Facebook or just find me on Facebook, Jean Cropper. Awesome. And uh, yeah, I would love to talk to other people and happy to collaborate with other people and learn from other people as well. Cool. And I'll put those links in the show notes so you can have them there. Is there anything else you would like to add today? Uh, I suppose one of the biggest things is if somebody's struggling with uh, post-traumatic stress or really difficult grief, that there really is ways to heal. There's many ways to heal. And there really is hope there and insights and learning and growth uh, from what you've been through. And uh, don't don't give up. Do ask questions. Do try new ways of healing. And uh, yeah, that there, there, there's sunlight at the end of the tunnel. I agree. Um, one of my favorite mantras or principles that I live by is that every experience is perfectly tailored to us individually to help us become the best version of ourselves. So, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, thank you so much, Jean, for sharing your story, your resilience, your determination, and your gifts with us. I love you how you have taken the tools that have helped you and now go on to teach others some of those same healing modalities so that they too can heal. Um, that's all the time that we have for today. Again, make sure you subscribe to the show so that you can have access to that exclusive workshop that I did with Jean on art and meditative drawing and grief and how we can use those tools for ourselves to heal. Thank you for joining us today on this episode of Share Your Story, Exploring Humanity One Heart at a Time, where we share real life experiences of converting grief into growth. Just a reminder, we will be moving from a weekly to a bi-weekly release schedule starting in January of 2023 with subscription-only content on some of the off weeks, so be sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss out on exclusive interviews and insights. And if you are struggling with your grief and would like help, I have recently opened the enrollment for my program Converting Grief into Growth. It is an individualized coaching program to support you in and through your grief and or teach you to support others as they do the same. Converting Grief into Growth consists of eight one-to-one -one sessions that each include a writing prompt and relevant action steps that you can implement immediately.
The length of the program is individualized because each journey is different. We all have different losses, different styles of grieving, and different processing speeds. As a result, each journey will be individualized. We will go as fast as possible and as slow as necessary to get you long-lasting and permanent growth in your life. So far, all of my clients have finished the program in two months or less and are still reaping the benefits of their time with me more than a year later. If, however, after two months you feel like you still need more time, you can purchase a monthly add-on for continued support. Through the end of the year, I'm offering Converting Grief into Growth for 50% off. If this is something you'd like to explore further, reach out to me through my website, grievingcoach.com, or send me an email at jenny at grievingcoach.com. We'll schedule a time to chat and see if this is a good fit for you. Until next time, remember that all of our experiences make us who we are and that we can turn grief into growth. You are known and loved in more ways than you could ever imagine. Your voice matters. So share your story.